Hello and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Here we are on the final day of 2021, and it's tempting to look back and say once again what an awful year it's been, and how we hope for so much better in 2022. Well, I'm going to try and be a bit clear-eyed here for a few moments and share my thoughts on the 365 days about to come to an end, and put what I think is a positive spin on what could be a better 365 about to start. First of all, Let's look back on the year that is coming to a close in a short 18 hours or so at the time this podcast is being published. I'm sure that you will agree that as bad as 2021 might have been, and I don't think there's much to argue here, it really wasn't all that great, it still compares favorably to the horror show that was 2020. Sure, it may be too soon to reflect objectively, but I, for one, am going to remember 2021 as the year that I got to return to triathlon, as opposed to the year where I got to do exactly none. For me, that's kind of a big win. 2021 also brought vaccines against COVID, and that offered a huge sense of relief to all of us in healthcare, even if there continues to be so much resistance to the science that brought us this incredible development. I could go on and on about the flip side of this and how the unvaccinated are the root cause of why we still have the magnitude of the pandemic that we do, but that would put more of a downer on the proceedings than I really want, so let's just leave it at that. Even if I was less than super excited about it, I know that a lot of folks out there will remember 2021 also, fondly for the introduction of the PTO and all that it brought with it. Though the good old-fashioned World Triathlon Corporation and Ironman had lots to be excited about as well, with the emergence of Sam Long, the ascension of Lucy Charles Barkley, Gustav Eden, and Christian Blumenfeld, and the incredible races that we saw at St. George, Panama City, Indian Wells, and many other locations. We also had some great first-time events, like the Ironman in Muncie, the re-emergence of the small local races across much of the country, and a renewed interest in all things fitness-related, including multi-sport, that can only bode well for the future. But with the present being dominated by talk of the Omicron variant of COVID, how excited should we really be about the future as 2022 is about to begin? Are we likely to be faced with renewed lockdowns and race cancellations? Or alternatively, is Omicron something different that might actually mean more of a light at the end of the tunnel? After two full years of treating this disease, I, for one, am seeing Omicron as a very different disease than what we have seen before, and something that might actually mean a shift from pandemic to endemic. And because of this, I do see reason to be optimistic. Let me explain. Unless you've been hiding out under a rock for the past few weeks, you are aware that the Omicron variant is quite radically different from any of the variants that preceded it. It appears that the reason for many of the 50 or so genetic mutations seen in Omicron may be a result of a person being co-infected with COVID and a different coronavirus responsible for causing a common cold. The swapping of genetic information that came about resulted in a COVID variant that is significantly more transmissible and to this point appears much less severe, so long as you have been vaccinated and boosted or have had COVID in the past. What this means is that Omicron is moving with lightning quick speed through the population, infecting many who are vaccinated but hitting the unvaccinated population with a ruthlessness heretofore unseen because of how fast it is spreading. 
The vaccines, along with the booster, appear to be much less effective in preventing infection than against previous variants, but seem to remain very effective at preventing serious illness, hospitalization, or death. Essentially, being vaccinated and infected with Omicron is, for the most part, no worse than a routine cold. You still don't want this disease if it can be avoided. But if you get it and you're vaccinated, you're likely to not be very sick, at least acutely, though there are still the possibilities of developing long COVID afterwards. The unvaccinated, well, they're in a whole different ballgame and are going to get much sicker and have a much higher likelihood of long-term complications. Now, here's the possible upside of all of this. With Omicron moving through the population as quickly as it is, it's having two important effects. First, it's displacing the other more significant variants like Delta, and it is resulting in significant immunity to COVID in general. Taken together, this means that we might be looking at COVID rapidly moving from a pandemic state to one where the disease is endemic. That is to say, it's there continuously living in the background, kind of like a minor nuisance for most, a significant concern, certainly for some, but not something that's going to require any of the kind of measures that we are currently seeing in order to mitigate the spread and contagion. So that's my rosy picture for 2022, and it's one that I'm sticking to. For me and my healthcare colleagues, it's definitely going to be a rough first couple of months. But after that, I'm really hopeful that we'll emerge into a more normal place where the disease is endemic and no longer something that we have to concern ourselves with on a day-to-day basis. On the show today, I'm going to take some time to answer a question that was submitted by a listener. It's partly a medical question and partly a coaching one, but one that I think is definitely worthwhile answering as it is something that I've seen bandied about in various discussion boards. It's also very timely. Xenia wrote to me to ask about how the body changes when we change our off-season training habits to de-emphasize volume and intensity and endurance to more work in the gym focusing on strength. I'm going to try to give an answer that covers a coach's viewpoint as well as explain the physiology of what's going on, and that's coming up shortly. Later, I'm joined by Vanessa Forrester. Vanessa is a mental endurance coach who had a revelation back in 2019 that she could be a podium contender in triathlon if only she got out of her own way. Essentially, Vanessa realized that she was sabotaging herself mentally, and she decided to do something about that. What she learned in the process became the foundation of her coaching business and her podcast, and she shares a little bit of that with me when we spoke back in November. You can hear our conversation, and it's coming up in a little while. Before all of that, I want to take a moment to acknowledge yet another new Patreon supporter of this podcast. Like many others, especially lately, Barry Japper, oh, I'm going to get this wrong, Barry Japadermawan, I'm so sorry, Barry, I tried my best, has decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, he wanted to get access to all kinds of interesting interviews available only to my supporters. Right now, there is bonus content in the form of interviews with Simon Marshall, Mark Allen, Dave Scott, Dan Emfield, and Alex Larson, just to name a few, along with video talks by me on the science of tapering and off-season health and wellness. So visit my Patreon site today, become a supporter so that you can get access to all of that right now. And that URL is patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering. I have spoken many times on this podcast, and you have no doubt heard this said by others as well, that the off-season is an important time to take a break from training volume and intensity in order to prepare yourself for ramping up your training again in the new year. 
It has also been said, both by me and others, that the off-season is also a great time to incorporate strength training into your routine if you haven't been doing it previously, or to increase the frequency of that kind of training if it's something you were already doing. Now, there are many reasons for doing this, and I'll get to them in a few minutes, but I want to first get to the reason that I'm bringing this up at this point in the program, and that is because of a question submitted by a listener. Xenia wrote to ask, what happens to an endurance-optimized body when we switch to weight training and reduce training load in the off-season? We might bulk up a bit and resting heart rate goes up, but what are the processes at play? Are these initially the same as during the pre-race taper? What changes do we need to make in order to continue taking good care of ourselves during these months? And why are we told that we can't maintain a high level of fitness all year round? Well, this is a great question that actually contains within it several sub-questions, and I'd like to get to them all because I think they're important to understanding why this time of year can be so vital to engendering success in the season to come. Let's consider the first part of her question because it gives me an opportunity to address the reasons why so many coaches emphasize strength training at this time. During the main part of the season, when training for triathlon, we subject our bodies to a large amount of wear and tear related to continuous strain on the shoulders while swimming, the hips, knees, ankles, and feet while we bike, and when we run. To sustain us through all of that work, our muscles must, pun very much intended, carry the weight. But we also have to have significant ability to withstand the stresses on our joints. This stress is most at play during weight-bearing, like we see in running, but even when swimming and biking, we can place stress on the joints that, if not adequately prepared, can result in injuries. For years, many coaches and health professionals have believed that the use of strength training is a valuable tool to build muscle strength in an effort to stabilize joints and to build resilience for the large volume of endurance work that comes in the bigger part of the season. There's not a whole lot of research in this area that bears out these theories, but the preponderance of expert opinion is so strong that it's still considered to be valid. There's another way that strength training benefits endurance athletes, and that is through improved performance. And this is where we need to get to Xenia's question, both in terms of answering it directly and in dispelling an important misconception that is implicit in how she asked it. Most everyone is going to be familiar with the concept of fast and slow-twitch muscle fibers. Just to be sure that we're all on the same page, let me do a brief little review. Our muscles can be thought of as being made up of these two types of fibers, each of which has specialization in terms of what it does best. Fast-twitch fibers are those that produce immense, powerful contraction and can do so in anaerobic or low-oxygen conditions. Fast-twitch fibers are those that are used for short-duration, high-intensity efforts, such as sprinting or explosive powerlifting. Now, contrast this with slow-twitch muscle fibers, which are the ones that work best when supplied with an abundance of oxygen and when asked to perform with much lower intensity demand. They perform exceptionally well for long periods when trained, and so are the real workhorses for endurance efforts. When a triathlon coach designs a strength program for a triathlete, the purpose of this program is not to build muscle mass. Rather, it's to build muscle strength. Traditional weight training that is designed for building strength and mass relies on frequent sets of short repetitions with high amounts of weights, amounts that are usually increased from set to set. So for example, if you're doing a bench press, you might start at 50 pounds and do 5 or 8 reps. 
you'll take a short break, and then for the second set, you're going to increase the amount of weight and do another five to eight. And on the third set, you're going to increase the weight again. When you're doing strength training of that type, the type where you're really trying to build mass as well as strength, you want those sets to be incrementally more difficult to the point that the last few reps of each set are incredibly hard and often not even doable without a spotter. The movements in this kind of weight training are rapid and powerful, with the result being predominantly recruitment of fast twitch muscles and a buildup of mass that is encouraged both by the work that's being done and the increased intake of dietary protein. Now, strength workouts for triathletes differ in that they are designed to build strength and not so much mass. So the design of these workouts is to use less weight, do more repetitions, and importantly, not increase the amount of weight with successive sets. So in this case, you might still be doing bench press, but you're going to do bench press with a much lower amount of weight. You're going to do 10 repetitions in each set, and you're going to do the same amount of weight for all three sets. The effect of this is to recruit more slow twitch muscles and improve strengthening of that group of fibers as well. If a triathlete stops all endurance training and only does strength training during their off-season, then yes, as Xenia mentions, they will lose, they will likely lose some cardiovascular fitness and they'll see their resting heart rate rise. But this doesn't have to be the case. You don't have to cut off all your endurance training completely. You can simply reduce the volume of endurance training and not stop altogether. And by doing so, it's still very possible to maintain a baseline of cardiovascular fitness at the same time as you improve your strength and resilience through increasing the amount of weightlifting that you're doing. So basically, there's really no reason that this shift in focus should result in bulking up and losing significant cardiovascular fitness so long as it's designed properly. Now, Xenia also asked if this period acts a bit like the taper period. Now, you may recall when I discussed the science of tapering that several physiologic processes go on when we reduce volume but maintain intensity in the week or two prior to an event. First and foremost, we allow for ourselves to recover their glycogen stores and to rebuild stores of other metabolic fuels and cofactors. But there's also an allowance for recovery from training and adaptation to that with all the ensuing benefits that then come to pass on the day of the event. Now, all of this does indeed happen during an off-season, but not really with the same effect. Because in the off-season, we are decreasing both volume and intensity, we will see a detraining effect that we don't see during the taper. However, this detraining is accepted in exchange for the other important benefits that we get in return. As I've already mentioned, the emphasis on strength training brings with it important benefits, but the off-season also allows for significant recovery and rehabilitation from any overuse injuries or syndromes that may have developed. It allows for restoration of muscle cell architecture and physiology that allows for the resumption of training after weeks or months of relative rest, and perhaps most importantly, Taking a break during the off-season gives us time for a mental refresh that allows the athlete to remove the focus and mental energy required to always be able to train and perform at a high level and instead concentrate on other things, if only for a while. Mental energy and relaxation, as we're going to hear shortly in my interview with this episode's guest, are vitally important to success, and we shouldn't minimize the importance of nurturing our mental health in order to come back with renewed motivation and focus in the new year. And this kind of gets to what I think is the heart of Xenia's question. Specifically, why can't we maintain a high level of fitness all year long? The truth is, there's no physical reason or limitation keeping us from being able to train at a certain level and maintain a high degree of fitness all year long, or even from year to year. 
However, there is definitely a psychological impact that this can take, and this should not, as I mentioned earlier, be underestimated. It takes a real conscious effort to stay consistent with our training, to remain motivated to do something every day, no matter what else we have going on, and no matter what else we might need to sacrifice in order to do it. Giving ourselves a break from that is a necessary thing in order to restore the mental toughness and fortitude to be able to dedicate ourselves with that same mental intensity as the physical intensity demands once we get going into our season come the spring. Furthermore, I mentioned that there's no reason why we can't maintain a degree of fitness all year long, but to expect that we can continue to improve our fitness continuously is simply not possible. At some point, we all reach a ceiling beyond which no amount of training or dedication is going to really gain us any additional advantages. At this point, it can make sense to pull back a bit and give ourselves room to progress in the new season, a type of physical and mental reset to allow for new goals and possible achievements when we restart the calendar. I hope this gives a worthy answer to a really timely question. I know for myself, I often take a full month to really lay off my training. I almost cut things in half, if not take several days off in a row that I never do during the season, in order to allow for a complete mental and physical decompression and just basically reset. I find it easier to allow for this over the holidays when my family expects my presence, and I can then be able to give it to them. And it sets me up well to restart with a new determination and focus once the new year begins on January 1st. I, for one, am really looking forward to 2022 and all of the exciting things that I have lined up for it. As it happens, much like this past year, most of my racing is in the latter half of the year, so come late November, I'll again be ready for a break, much as I was this year, and I know that just like this year, by New Year's Eve in 2022, going into 2023, I'll feel pretty much the same as I do right now, rested, reinvigorated, and with a clear eye on my goals for the new year, and ready to start training again in earnest come the morning. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the podcast? Well, I hope that you'll send it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. I will be sure to get back to you, take a look at it, and let you know if I'm, if I'm going to answer it on the program. A new year is about to begin, and it's time to think about how you will get yourself trained to be the best that you can be for all your races in 2022. Have you ever considered or wondered about doing a triathlon camp? Well, this April, LifeSport Coaching will be hosting a multi-sport camp in beautiful St. George, Utah. Led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson and with coaches Juliet Hockman, a former Olympian, and myself, the TriDoc, you can get yourself ready by spending some time with other athletes in a beautiful setting, learning from some of the best coaches around. Along with the scenic bike rides and runs, the fully coached swim sessions, there'll be various clinics and talks on multi-sport training and racing. And in addition, I'll be giving some talks on staying healthy and injury-free and on how to rehab from injuries while training and racing at a high level. For more information or to sign up, email me, the TriDoc, at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or visit lifesportcoaching.com where you can find more information about pricing and even sign up if you're interested. That website again is lifesportcoaching.com. My guest today is Vanessa Forster. She's a mental endurance coach for high-achieving endurance athletes who are looking to hit their next-level performance faster. She went from consistently underperforming to a podium finisher and Kona qualifier all in one year. 
And Vanessa teaches how to drop the self-doubt, fuel radical self-confidence, and build the mental endurance to race stronger and faster. I came across Vanessa when she did a very entertaining and informative, I thought, uh, interview with, uh, I guess, our mutual friend, Alex Larson. And uh, right away, I knew that I had to have her on the podcast. So welcome to the TriDoc Podcast, Vanessa. Mm, Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Awesome. So uh, tell me, I guess, uh, right from the top uh, about your history in triathlon. How did you come to the sport? Um, you know, what what made you decide that y- you could do more? Mm, I love this question because I feel like every year it kind of evolves to be a slightly different version of what brought me here. But I, um, I, I think one of my one of my favorite things about my past in sport is that it doesn't span very far. <laughs> I didn't grow up playing sport. I um, actually in high school, my chosen activity of choice was speech and debate. So I was that kid. I did mock trial middle school, speech and debate in high school, and then went to college and thought, you know what, I kind of want to try this whole athlete thing. Let's see what happens here. (laughs) And so um, I knew going to college, I went to the University of Georgia, that I wanted to pick up a sport. And I was between flag football and rowing. And my mom was like, I want you to play a real sport. So definitely choose rowing. So that was my entry into sport at all. You know, growing up, I played a little bit of sports here and there, but never long enough to get good, which is the opposite of my husband. He's a lifelong soccer player and just did it forever and ever. So, um, yeah, I was a collegiate rower and, uh, it was such a eye-opening experience for me just to be a part of a team. It's such an amazing team sport, um, but also to push myself in a way I hadn't before. So I'm so grateful to that experience in college because it opened my eyes to what it means to find limits within myself that I didn't uh, know were there before. And when I left rowing uh, in my third year of college, I decided to pick up running because, you know, we all, my husband will actually will not like that I say this, but we know how to run because it's just faster walking. He's a PT and a running specialist. And he's like, that's not actually true. <laughs> there are mechanics to running. It's not faster walking, but that was my thought process back then. So yeah, I uh, picked up running and in the process of my first half marathon, I thought, I think I'll do a sprint. That sounds fun. You just do three sports and that's, that's cool. So I did my first sprint triathlon and that was in 2007 and I quickly fell in love. I fell in love with the community, with the with multi sport, with the people around it, with the challenge of it. And uh, I said, I want to do more of this. This is this feels right up my alley. I think I can get better at this. And I actually fell into long course pretty quickly because I was living, you know, I went to University of Georgia. I was living in Atlanta, and um, the Atlanta Triathlon Club is a fantastic group that just invited me in. I just immersed myself in the whole community of it. And you know what it's like when you're around other people, long course triathletes, you kind of lose, I feel like this, the sight of reality <laughs> that doing things like marathons and half Ironmans and Ironmans is actually not normal, but I just fell right in. I was like, this is amazing. I want to do all the things. So I uh, picked up long course by 2010. That was my first half Ironman. And then um, 2011 was my first Ironman, which is 10 years ago this weekend. So I love the timing of this podcast because I'm racing Ironman Arizona on Sunday, and that'll be the celebration of my first Ironman 10 years ago, also in Arizona. So that's my journey in uh, 
I don't That's know, awesome. two minutes. Well, I have, minutes. I have, no, I have a couple of things I want to ask in there. So what was yeah. your swim background? I mean, you spent time on the water as a rower. I did. Where, yeah. Where did you come from in swimming? Um, I am an adult learn swimmer for sure. I, uh, I knew how to swim, but for that first, that first, uh, triathlon, I went to the pool like yeah, three times, I think maybe the week before the race, the very close to the race. And I thought I can, I can make it. I won't drown, <laughs> but I, uh, I definitely didn't have a proficient background in swimming, but the thing that has always been true for me is that I'm, I'm willing to try. I'm willing to put myself in the arena. I'm willing to go for it, even if it isn't, even if I'm not the best at it. And that was, that's true now. That was true then. And so I, uh, swimming has been the biggest, uh, journey for me in terms of my development as an athlete. And I mean that both physically and mentally, because, you know, you spoke to what I do for work. I'm a mental endurance coach. And for me, my swim was the thing that what I struggled with the most in terms of like holding myself back. And when it's the first part of the race, it definitely bleeds into the rest of the race. So I, I didn't have a very big background in swimming, but I was willing to try. And then when I fell in love with the sport, I thought, okay, I should probably do this more. I should probably train, learn how to swim, get better at technique. And, um, it's been a process for sure. Now I am coached um, by Haley Chura, who is a two-time Olympic uh, qualifier. So I have definitely more tools in my tool belt, but I, I, I was seeking those out because I really wanted to change the game for myself in the swim background. Yeah, and I'm looking at your swim times, and they're quite impressive in the way that they march ever downward. Uh, this past May uh, in St. George, 31 minutes. That's mm-hmm. uh, a very fast swim. So that's uh, uh, a testament to your hard work and obviously uh, to your coach's uh, uh, influence on you as well. So kudos for that because I, as, an, uh, as a kindred adult learner swimmer, I know how hard it is mm-hmm. to, to make strides in that sphere of the race. It's really difficult. Uh, What made you decide or at what point did you decide that you weren't content being kind of middle of the pack and you wanted to see yourself up on the podium? Because everybody, I think, goes through a different kind of journey to that point. Not everybody gets there, but some people, you know, you did. And I'm interested in, in what sort of flipped that switch for you. Yeah, that flip, that switch definitely flipped for me. Um, I think I was in process of it for a couple years, but like the real switch happened in 2018 uh, when I did the I did Ironman Chattanooga for the first time um, because I was also in process of doing my own personal self development journey, and when I was studying, you know, just about what it means to create a life that you love or be really deliberate in your choices and be intentional with how you're living and, you know, just creating a greater scope for those things. I, I brought the attention to this, this thing that I spend so much time doing called triathlon. You know, it's, it's a, it was a lifestyle for me. And I thought, I wonder how, what it would be like if I was very deliberate in choosing exactly what I wanted to accomplish in the sport of triathlon instead of keeping it very nebulous and just like wanting to make this gradual improvement, which I realized I was doing because I was in fear and I was, I was playing that safe game of like, well, if I'm just like, I keep chugging along, you know, eventually I'll get better instead of being really clear and intentional with like, no, this is what I really want because this is what's going to raise the bar for me. And so I made that choice 
in the year uh, 2018 to 2019, uh, where I did Ironman Chattanooga both years. And, uh, that was, that was a really important year for me to address how I was approaching all of my training. Like, and I just mean that holistically, like training, recovery, uh, sleep, nutrition, all of the things. And if I made the conscious and deliberate, deliberate choices on purpose in terms of like how I set my goals, then what would that change for me? And could I really accomplish what I wanted to do? And so, so that was the whole like kind of premise behind 2018 or 2018 to 2019, where I set what I call an impossible goal. Uh, I do that on purpose to kind of trick the brain a little bit, but I set the impossible goal to win my age group at Ironman Chattanooga, having not been on a podium before. That's, that was the switch for me. Wow. And that's, that's like a pretty big jump too. Uh, you know, a lot of people, as you say, you know, would make it more, you know, maybe top 15, top 10 kind of thing, mm-hmm. and then sort of progress from there. And you went all in. I went so all in. I, I like it's kind that. of my personality. <laughs> what was your, what was your sort of epiphany about how, um, you know, mental endurance seems to be so integral or at least important for you. And now mm-hmm. you, you pass it on to others. I'm curious how you came to that decision or that discovery. In, in that year or just whenever it was, I mean, you, you, you refer, uh, on your website to how having the, the sort of the reformed, reformed revised way that you approached your training mentally mm-hmm. seemed to be the thing that, that made you able to take that jump. And I'm curious is at what point did you recognize that it maybe wasn't all physical, that there was something, you know, above the neck that was getting in the way of your success? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it, we could tie it back to that same time when that, when that switch flipped, because I recognize that every choice that we make, every action that we take stems from what's happening above the neck, right? So what I'm doing physically in my training is only going to be as good as what's happening between my ears. So I had to pay attention to all of my limiting beliefs, everything that I believed about myself, what I call my self-concept as an athlete, which is like who I am, what I believe about myself, but also how I interact in the world and addressing things like for me coming back to the swim, right? We talked about being an adult learned swimmer. And for so long, that was the place where I've never felt good enough. I never felt like I could ever be as good as them, whoever them is at the time, you know, it was master's groups and now I swim with Haley Chura and other people that have been swimming their entire lives and believing those things about myself really held back my ability to make pro- like true progress and really hit that next level. Like I could make incremental, but it was, it was releasing that that allowed me to make bigger jumps faster. Now you talk a lot about mental toughness and you talk about that being the key. Uh, but you know, I, I think there's also some truth to the fact that not everybody can set that goal of winning their age group is going to win their age group because there's got to be something to the physical as well. Yeah. Well, I didn't uh, actually win my age group. <laughs> uh, regardless of what it is. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know like I have athletes come to me and say my goal is to make it to Kona and mm-hmm. I'm like, that's, that's a laudable goal, but I think we have a long way to go before we can get there. I mean, they could be the most positive most, uh, lack self-doubt over in this case, potentially overconfident. And I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, I am a firm believer that your mental state plays into your performance, no doubt. But I wonder how you sort of view the weighting of, you know, the amount of physical training, the amount of physical fitness you bring to an event, and then your attitude. I, I definitely believe they're complementary. I'm just curious, 
you know, I mean, if you have somebody who simply is not putting in the training, I don't think all the mental toughness in the world is going to help them. So I'm curious how you kind of put those together. Yeah, I think there's an accountability piece 100% of the time, right? Like what I teach is about emotional health and taking responsibility for our emotions and how we show up in the world. And if you're not doing the training, you're absolutely not going to hit the goal. But hitting the goal or setting the goal in the first place can be the thing that allows you to rise up and be like, this is how I want to show up in the world. I want to do these, make these choices. I want to commit to my training in a whole new level. Let's go. And I think back on my own experience as a, a, an adult learner swimmer who came to triathlon and was in triathlon for a very long time as a very content kind of middle of the pack guy. And then uh, I had my own reason for switch flipping to get to realize that, you know, I could do better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I know of what you speak when you talk about the self-doubt and everything else is because we show up at these events and we look around us and it's very easy to be psyched out just by the appearance of so many other athletes who mm-hmm. are clearly in very, very peak form and look very confident and have all the gear and everything mm-hmm. else. And it's easy to be, be overcome with imposter syndrome and think, well, what am I doing here? I don't belong. How, how could I have such a goal? So what are some of the techniques that you use to try and help your athletes overcome those things? Yeah. So two things just pop into mind. Um, first and foremost, uh, there's a quote by Simon Sinek. He says, we can all, we can, something like we can achieve more when we chase the dream, not the competition. And I think that's so powerful because of what you're speaking about. We get, we get caught up in the compare and despair because we spend the time we should be focusing on ourselves, focusing on other people going outside, going to the external instead of focusing on the internal, which is so, so important when we, if we can be aware of it and redirect it, especially in the last like four to six weeks before a big race. I believe that is like when we're the most vulnerable to be looking outside of ourselves and we've got to bring it back in. We've got to focus on what's been going well in our training. I do a thing with my, with my athletes where we, we create a training bank where, cause we always think we're going to remember. We never remember. So we go back and we log everything, not just the metrics. It's not about what pace did we hold, what watts did we hold. It's like, how are we feeling? What, where, where can we derive that confidence? Where did, we, where did we overcome something that we didn't think was possible before? That kind of thing. And that's what we can draw on because that emotion is what's really important on race day because we're not really racing for a medal or a t-shirt or a hat. We're racing for that sense of accomplishment and success with that feeling. And we're cultivating that all through our training. We just sometimes forget to see it. Right. And, you know, when you talk about setting these goals and you said you set yourself a goal that was very, very high, do you also work with athletes to set kind of different goals for the same event? Like, for example, I'll work with my athletes and say, okay, this is our primary goal. This is our stretch goal. Um, you know, stretch goal might be winning your age group, a primary goal might be top 10 uh, or top five, depending on the athlete. Um, I'm, I'm curious because mm-hmm. that way I'm always worried. Like when, when you had your, your event and you had set that goal, you didn't achieve it. How do you avoid the athlete coming away from it with a sense of failure? Yeah. You want them to, you want them to feel positive, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and maybe not positive, but like, you don't have to be like, you can be disappointed was what I want to, it's okay to feel a bit of disappointment, not hitting the goal. But to be honest, when it came to my race, I didn't win, but I felt like I won because coming back to what you're saying, I do, I set a, a couple different types of goals. You can, Compare it a bit to process versus outcome, but I call it your winning results versus your bonus results. I use the term result on purpose instead of goal. Uh, I use those um, 
use both words, but mostly in my coaching I use the word result because I want to show ourselves, show our brains, the, the, our abilities to create the results that we want based on the choices that we're making and the emotions that we're going after. So I have my athletes set what's called winning results, which are these skills that we want to adopt, these uh, perspective changes, these ways of training that we can make progress towards in our training and also on race day. So that when we cross the finish line, no matter what the outcome is, we will have won something, right? For me uh, in Chattanooga, spoiler alert, I got second in my age group. I didn't win, but I, on that day, I had spent time. One of my winning results was working with my management of heat, but not just physically, but mentally as well. And my approach to heat training, I live in Bozeman, Montana, which is a tundra, like eight months out of the year. (laughs) And I was racing in Chattanooga and it was actually snowing here in Bozeman when it was 105, very humid in Chattanooga when I was racing. So for me to be able to race the way that I did and come out second in my age group, I was like, I won this day. (laughs) This is everything. So while my plaque says second, I crossed knowing that I put everything I could on that day. And so the the disappointment wasn't something that held me back or I got down on myself about, if that makes sense. Ah, It totally makes sense. Um, I'm curious also when you you talk about athletes and their self-doubt uh how where do you think that's coming from do you think it's innate do you think it's something that's learned uh why why is that such a big component of what holds athletes back because i and you're not the first person to tell me this i I had a conversation with simon marshall and leslie patterson who uh wrote the book Mm -hmm. brave athletes right there on my bookcase they talk a lot about self-doubt and imposter syndrome and all Mm -hmm. of those things and i'm curious if you think or from your talking with clients and other athletes, are they coming with self-doubt that they've just always had? Or is this something that they've learned from experience? Uh, Where do you think people are getting this? I think that we often describe it as something we've always had. That's a thought that we have about it, but I believe that it's learned. Whether it's learned as children or as teenagers or as adults, it's learned based on our way of interacting in the world and our way of comparing ourselves to what we think we should be versus what we are and also then comparing it to what we want to achieve, right? The most common limiting belief is not being good enough, right? And everyone defines good, different, fast enough, skinny enough, better, whatever. And I believe that's learned. Absolutely. And, and so it can be unlearned, which is also really important. Right. And, and they talk about that as well. Um, I, and I, and I want to go back just a little bit because, uh, just to my own experience as, as becoming a, a more proficient triathlete, I, I'm really fascinated by the fact that you just made this cognizant effort that I'm going to change, I, I'm going to change my approach and I'm going to set my goal as winning my age group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it, it's, but I mean, a lot of people from the outside could look at that and say, you haven't established yourself even in whatever, you know, echelon of your, of your age group. How, how do you, how do you, how is that not overconfidence, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, you, you want, because I, I could think of my own experience and think how a lot of my uh, sort of approach and thinking that, well, I, I'm not going to you know, when I'm not going to be against these guys because I would look and see what those other guys in my age group are doing for times. And I would look at my time and see the gap and be, and realize that it just didn't seem like it was in the realm of possibility. I actually had to 
train harder, to make myself faster, to start seeing that gap narrow, to start having the belief that I could get there. It seems like you flipped that on its head and actually took Mm -hmm. the belief before you saw the results. And I'm just curious how, um, how you think, how much do you think one versus the other, I guess is, is a long winded, really complicated (laughs) way of asking that question. (laughs) That's okay. I love this question because it's a hundred percent one of the driving philosophies behind my coaching is that you have to believe in yourself before the data results give you permission. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. But our natural tendency is to look to the data to be like, now we're ready. Now it's yeah, okay you to want, believe in myself. You want something that affirms your belief. Yeah, you want the external right. validation. And so then we're always constantly searching for the external validation to tell us that we're ready. Right. I, I guess I struggle with this kind of like, like I could have showed up at races all along and said, well, I'm going to have this as my goal. See that I didn't get it because I was just not, it wasn't realistic at the time. I needed to change the way I was training. I needed to change the yes. way I was doing there's, things there's to, get, definitely to make this it realistic. Like, baseline. That's why I work with high achieving athletes, high performers already, because there's a certain baseline level. I'm not talking about like back of the Packers, right? There's a certain baseline where now it's like the, the physical piece or there's a piece that's already dialed in. And then from there, we're turning the dial to create that next level. Right. To have them actually capitalize and leverage their physical talents by improving their mental outlook Correct. and their mental approach. Correct. So if someone wants to work with you, do they have to be coming from a, a already a position of success? No. Um, and everyone defines success differently. Um, there's, it's, it's really about their, how do I describe this? So I, I, I do consult calls. I do free consult calls with anyone that's interested. And in my consult call, um, uh, intake, intake process, I ask a couple questions just to get some background. And so one of them, one of the questions that's imperative is that there's, they've been a coached athlete for at least three years because that shows me their buy-in and that shows me that they're not putting mental energy into creating their own training program, right? So that's one piece of it. And then from there, depending on what their goal is, what they've already achieved and what that gap is, then we look at that and we see what, what's been holding them back and how long they've been working towards that goal. Right. So there's a couple different pieces that are at play and it's different for each person. Uh, I think that's a, that's a great starting point. I love that question about have you been coached for three years? Cause I agree with you. People, people who spend a lot of time trying to do their own plan often are putting too much mental energy somewhere. It doesn't belong. Yes. And uh, then don't, <laughs> they know who to blame when they don't get the success. <laughs> I guess that's one thing. Yeah. That's one place to that put the blame. And I, you know, it's, it's such a powerful thing to have someone in your life. That's that, like you, I know you coach athletes as well, just to, to offload that and to build a sense of trust, like that's a big piece of the coaching I do is self-trust and trust in yourself, trust in your, in your program, and then releasing that bit of control to put that energy into the training that you're doing and your mental capacity. Right. I want to finish off with one last question. And that is, I, I know it's uh, branded on your site that you're a life coach. So yeah. I, I've heard this term before. Uh, help me and me, me, my listeners who may not have heard this before. Tell us what a life coach is and how a life coach can uh, help people reach success in other areas of their uh, daily lives. Yeah. So I think the, the best way for me to describe is, is to compare it, life coaching to therapy, because often that's like the biggest question I get, like, what's the difference? And therapy often... Uh, focuses on what's happened in your life, your past, and how that's 
um, engineered kind of where you are now, like anything that you've gone through in your life and you spend time dissecting that. Coaching, life coaching is about what you want to create in the future, where you want to go from where you are right now and really focusing on making the best of the time that you have and, and making the choices in line with where you want to go. And so I have chosen to apply that into triathlon, right? What are the goals? How do you, how do you want to show up? What do you want to achieve on the race course? But it always spills to off the race course because I believe so strongly that how you do one thing is how you do everything. So that's the best part about it. While I focus on triathlon, it becomes this whole life holistic approach because it always, it's one and the same. We, we, everything we do on course always applies off course too. That's great. I, I know you have to go. So just before uh, we finish, just tell us uh, about your podcast and I will have the links for your podcast as well as your website in the show notes, but just uh, quickly, uh, maybe just give us a, a snapshot of what your podcast is about. Sure. It's called the train your mind podcast with Vanessa Faye Forrester. And um, what I do on the podcast currently, it's kind of changing a little bit, but um, I always commit to 20, 15 to 20 minutes or less of my episodes. And they, what I do is I bring my concepts from my coaching and I put them on the podcast and I try to dissect them in a way that anyone listening can get something out of it. It's my goal, whether you follow me on Instagram or listen to my podcast, that you you have the ability to get mini transformation things that you can take into your training and have increase your own mental endurance. And so that's what you can expect from my podcast. Awesome. Well, Vanessa, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I wish you the very best of luck this coming weekend. What's your goal? Oh, I'm going for the win. All I like right. to win. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I knew what that answer was going to be, but I had to ask. Of course anyways. you did. I like it. I'll talk about it all day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wish you the very best of luck. I will be tracking you along with some other folks that are going to be racing that day. And uh, I'll hope uh, that we will be meeting up in Kona next year because you will oh, yes. have uh, secured that slot. Oh, I already have it from 2019. Oh, you have it. Yeah. Well, then, so well then we'll both be in Kona and then we can look forward to talking more uh, about mental endurance in Sounds a much good. nicer environment. Thank you again for joining me today. Thank you. Cheer aloud this weekend. Okay, thanks, Jeff. And just to give a brief follow-up, it shouldn't come as any surprise, that interview was uh, recorded about a month ago now, just before Ironman Arizona. Vanessa went on to finish third in her age group. She was positively thrilled with the result. She had an outstanding day. She uh, was up against a very tough field, and she was very pleased with the outcome. Uh, Vanessa's uh, links to uh, her Instagram and her podcast can be found in the show notes. I hope that you will uh, give her a follow. She's uh, a very entertaining podcaster and someone definitely worth checking out. And that's it for this episode of the TriDoc Podcast and for the podcasts in this year, 2021. Let's hope that 2022 is as good as I mentioned that I hoped it would be at the top of the show. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my indomitable intern, Maddie Pesh. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at TriDocPodcast.com. If you have questions or comments about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or if you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode, I hope that you'll send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit try.coaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast and getting access to lots of bonus content. And that can be done at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multi-sport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy, and have a very safe and happy new year.